0: Crossing Phase, the first podcast featuring a Christian and a Muslim talking religion and politics. My name is Matt Hawkins. I'm a former policy director for the Southern Baptist Convention. And my friend John Pinna is founder and executive director of Muslims for Muslims. If you're watching on YouTube, please consider subscribing to the audio podcast wherever you get your podcasts. If you're listening to the audio format already, thanks for listening and downloading. And we're pleased to let you know we're now showing our video selves two-dimensionally on YouTube. Uh, if you want to check out what we look like, you'll probably want to turn it off after the fact and, and not watch. You probably want to go back to the audio edition. That's okay. Uh, as always, all of our information is available at CrossingPhase.com. And we're on Twitter at CrossingPhase. John Penna. You're looking very ethnically, culturally dressed this morning. You know, I feel
1: very much like an Islamic scholar, but the the truth of the matter is, is that I have no laundry, so I came out of the shower, <laughs> and this is all I had. Although my <laughs> Tunisian cousins will will love it because this was a gift from them, but I was uh-huh. racing around, and I'm like, oh my god! So, um, but I can do the Islamic scholar this yeah. and point. Yeah.
0: I can do that. <laughs> you look the part, finally. We've been doing this podcast for a year, and you finally look you, the part.
1: You know, I, I, it's, it's, the embroidery is sexy. I think it is. And, the, and blue has always been my color. So.
0: It, it looks um, good on you. It looks good on yeah. you. You understand so, I'm culturally uh, dressed today, too. Do you understand this?
1: Are you? I, I don't see a baseball cap. I don't see a trucker cap. I don't no. see you covered in hay. You know?
0: It's the, it's the last appropriate week in the South to wear pastels. Right. So okay. I'm wearing, oh, what's I, it's the just rule? a polo, right? It's Labor no, Day. No color. white after Labor Day. No, no white, no pastels. We got to turn off the summer colors. So this okay. is the closest I can get to your cultural wear right now.
1: All right. Well, <laughs> listen, you guys got your, your coveralls, <laughs> double alls, whatever. So uh, I'm, coming after, I'm coming off of a birthday and my mother, she had this, look at this card. Look how perfect this card is that she, this freedom of religion and expression. This is from the this is from the UN. She specifically got this card for me for my birthday.
0: Oh wow!
1: So, yeah, it's pretty Listeners, cool.
0: Please please wish JT Pennett a happy birthday.
1: Yeah, I made it another That's year a really here. Cool so card.
0: Yeah. yeah, it's
1: pretty neat. And then yep. I I, uh, I ended up taking a I went to there's this place up here called the Rheinbeck Airdrome, yep. and it, they have biplanes. And uh, I went there when I was a little kid. And I was, you know, my parents were like, we paid for the show. We paid for the museum. You're not getting a plane ride. And uh, <laughs> this year I was able to take the plane ride. Open cockpit. Great. Open Sorry, cockpit. technical uh, difficulties. difficulties. Yeah, you see, yeah, it's okay. So open cockpit biplane It was kind of neat. Nice. So.
0: Um, well, joining us today a special guest, a longtime friend of John's, and uh, I'm pleased to include uh, another alum from George Mason University. Uh, longtime listeners may start to figure out that the two credentials that make you most likely to be a guest on Crossing Phase are one, you're a religious person of some sort, of some faith, and then number two that really steers in your direction is you have a degree from George Mason University, which uh, is starting to become a pattern. Um, but uh, Manal Omar has a bachelor's degree in international relations from george mason university also a master's degree in arab studies from georgetown university but frankly those academic credentials only scratch the surface of her experience and her insights uh so banal omar welcome to crossing Faiths.
2: thank you thanks for having uh, having me and happy birthday john i didn't realize it was your birthday so no i appreciate
1: <laughs> it. august 24th you know so it's one of those days where you know you're always hoping that Mom um, always makes a cake and she decorates it as if it I was a child, you know, and for the uh-huh. same stuff. Um, no, I appreciate that. And it's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's always a, a, one of those times I, it's, it's like my new year. I always kind of reflect on how far I've come and where I'm going and all that stuff. So it was a, uh, it was a good birthday because I was able to take some more time with, with the family because of COVID and all this other stuff. So. Yeah.
0: Beautiful. We'll talk shortly about uh, Monal's organization across red lines. For whom she is founder and CEO, but John, uh, how would you introduce Manal to our listeners?
1: I would introduce. I mean, I, there's there's a, a long list of credentials uh, associated with with Manal. I mean, I think that my best way for me to describe Manal as is she's on the cutting edge of the fight that we have within our community and the struggle to. Uh, represent the dignity of the the human person and who we are as as Muslims, exploring not only the historical and spiritual background of who we are but how we express that in our daily lives and how we express that internally with uh, the community outwardly within the community, but most importantly on how one uh, addresses that within their own value and who they are as a a Muslim and as a person. Um, I I met Manal. We collaborated very, very closely on an event with the Dalai Lama. uh, And it was such an important event where we discussed uh, how faith communities deal with uh, identity in a world where there's conflict, and particularly, obviously, with the Muslim backdrop. Um, and uh, I think at that time she was uh, the vice vice president working at, at UCF the United States Institute for peace and we have a lot of common friends but I mean she's worked with a number of US government agencies she's World Bank United Nations oxfam and and uh, has her own organization across red lines uh, right now that deals with uh, the, the this idea of identity and deals with trauma, it deals with sexuality, it deals with all the words that you don't like to associate or talk about within Islam. Um, And she does it in a way that's not only thoughtful, but uh, is uh, a manner in which you can actualize and actually do something about your own self-worth and your own self-expression. And I hope that, I hope it was a more esoteric introduction, but <laughs> I, I believe that's more of who who you are to me, uh, mm. and that is part of what we're why we have you on is to discuss and talk about um, not only who you are and what you're about and your organization, but really the idea behind uh, why you came to this place. And maybe you could talk a little bit about. From, from your perspective, who you are, why, how you arrived at, at Cross Red Lines, and really what the purpose of it is.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and i love to, and thank you both for such a great introduction. Um, I think, you know, I'll, I'll say kind of, you know, um, what we were talking about earlier, you know, my background, like, you know, I was born in Saudi Arabia, and my parents came to America when I was six months. Um and they chose to be in Texas and later South Carolina and I always tease them I'm like you missed the memo like immigrants go to coasts like why did you like go you know there and and over time I realized why <laughs> true story is give them a hard time about it and and with age I really realized um what happened you know the the you know the small town the fact that it was all centered around kind of the Bible in some ways all of that. Um, is what they remembered from their background. You know, the, the, you know when I was in the South, we knew all our neighbors, you know, we, we would go in and out of houses, like the children would play in the streets. There was never one house, you know, like we were just going in and out. And I think that kind of fits the, you know, the Palestinian small town centered around mm-hmm. the mosque type of mentality. So only with age and especially Texas, because of the oil. So I'm like, okay, you found oil, you found heat, you found small town, like you got it all <laughs> and, you know, came over there. <laughs> Um, So it made sense with age. But when I was younger, I would tease them quite a bit. And I feel that plus being a woman, um, it set me up to negotiate from childhood. You know, I was always negotiating. I was always explaining. Um, And whenever we would go back to the Middle East, um, everyone, you know, the only thing they saw on TV was Dynasty and, you know, all these soap operas. So they thought we all lived like that. And, and to a certain extent, they questioned our morality. So I'm like, no, no, no. Like, you know, my friends in Texas and South Carolina, they're a lot like you. You know, they don't, you know, I, I grew up with where girls weren't wearing makeup and where, you know, we had curfews. And, you know, there was just, a there was a lot of similarity in, um, I forgot what the word is in the English, in the Tetebia and the way that we were raised. Um, So I was constantly kind of an ambassador. In the Middle East, I'm explaining America and and defending America. In America, I'm defending the Middle East and Islam. So, you know, I feel like my career was shaped for me, you know, from childhood. Like, I I don't know how much of an option I really had. And I kind of willfully stepped into that role of bridge builder. And that's what I see myself as I build bridges.
0: It's pretty fascinating, Manal. It uh, gives us great insight into your talents as a as a translator uh, between cultures, if not if not languages, which is clearly a, a theme of the Crossing Phase uh, podcast. Um, so, th- thank you for sharing. I think the, the jolt of people hearing Saudi Arabia to Texas to South Carolina uh, messes with messes with uh, people's categories, which is a thing I like to do uh, here on, on Crossing Phase. Um, can you sh- share us a little bit about your religious background in particular? Um, we, we, we kind of established over time kind of where in the Islam orbit uh, John is. And so anytime we have a guest on, um, I kind of like to get kind of understand better where in your <laughs> particular faith um, you reside, uh, might be uh, spiritually or, or theologically.
2: Um, I I think probably I would classify myself as what we call a perennialist in terms of I believe all faiths come from the divine. Um, I feel like as a Muslim um, to really truly embrace the side of Islam, I need to understand the other faiths and the other religions and particularly the other books. But, you know, I truly believe that all um, faiths come from the divine. Um, I think you know, it would be arrogant to assume that, you know, and I know that the Middle East are problem children, but that, you know, the only religions were sent to the Middle East when there's an entire world, an entire global community out there. Um, so for me, I chose Islam as my path, but I don't see it as the only path. And I label myself more as a perennialist than anything else.
0: Interesting. Um, can you can you tell us a little bit about uh, opting into Islam? Um, maybe how that occurred, if you feel comfortable?
2: Yeah, I mean, I, um, I don't know, you know, I always say to a certain extent, I think I was fortunate because I grew up with a fairly secular family. Um, So for for example, both in Texas and South Carolina, we were active in the church, I went to Sunday school, um, and not from a necessarily religious perspective, you know, you know, understanding the immigrant mentality, my parents were like, wait, 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 time out, you're going to take all five children all day for free. So every Sunday, that was like their heyday, and they were like more than happy to send us there. And sometimes as they dropped us off and like, you know, sped on out, they'd be like, don't forget you're Muslim. Um, But, you know, really kind of grew up with this, um, you know, you know, a, a family that were very committed to integration. And, you know, with that came some downsides, but like that was definitely their commitment. Um, you know, we had a Christmas tree. We celebrated Christmas with the neighbors. Um, and I think for me, there was just a part of me that became very curious you know you you just i physically looked different um you know Mm -hmm. i was bigger than most of the people my age you know i tend to have you know more curly hair so there was just something about me that was constantly like okay well there's something different um so when i would push my parents um you know they were you you know my parent my father's belief which i believe firmly as well is religion is morality like if you're treating people well you know, the whole do unto others as you would have them do unto you, then you are a person of faith and you don't really need to go into more detail than that. Um, But, you know, I'm a very proud nerd. I'm a very proud geek. And I was like, I need to go deeper. I need to know everything. I need to know the root. Um, So I I think I was a seeker and, um, at the age of seven, I had some dreams about the prophet. And that kind of led me to reading about the mm-hmm. life of the prophet. And it was almost like I found a home. And I became very entrenched um, in Islam and kind of found my own way. Uh, it's actually funny. My parents were running interventions because they were so afraid that I would become so extreme that they were constantly pulling me back um, to a more, especially in high school. I'm like, all my friends are getting like drug interventions. I'm getting religious interventions. Like, what's going on? Um, but again, with age, I'm really grateful that they were consistently balancing out that fire that was in my belly as a youth.
0: That's pretty fascinating. Thanks for sharing that, that insight. Uh, I think it's uh, always interesting to hear people's faith journeys, uh, particularly when um, uh, maybe they grew up in a, in a household that uh, had a particular faith, but um They didn't just presume it. uh, They've kind of selected it and kind of owned it uh, or chosen something different. So I always like to get those uh, backgrounds to better understand where folks are coming from. I appreciate that. So tell us about your organization, Across Red Lines.
2: Yes. Um, So, you know, as John mentioned, I've worked for several organizations, the World Bank, the United Nations. Um, You know, when I got kind of tired of the big multilateral because I was worried about, you know, how effective are we? I went to smaller NGOs. I mean, no one would call Oxfam small, but, you know, compared to the World Bank, Oxfam and to Women for Women International and really worked on the ground with civil society. Um, While I was working with civil society, I kind of grew frustrated and was saying, okay, these aren't the decision makers. You know, so I asked myself, who is the decision maker? And again, I was very involved with the UN and the World Bank, and they aren't the decision maker. Um, so I realized the US government, and um, it was actually a hard shift for me, but I was, you know, I feel like as an American citizen, and I, I really do love my adopted homeland, that I had the opportunity and access. Um, so when the Obama administration came into play, I came back to the US and I worked for the US government. And after those eight years, you know, 25 years and maybe a dent in the world of conflict, maybe, you know, a hiccup in the compass. Uh, So I had to ask myself again, you know, what really would prevent because I was tired of managing and resolving conflict. So I really Mm. pushed myself. I said, what would actually prevent? Um, And for me, that became women uh, and particularly women of faith. I think women of faith fall in between the cracks. Um. Let's face it, religious institutions aren't the kindest to women. Uh, we've been burned, we've been hung, we've been, you know, stoned in the name of religions. So we tend to have a little bit of, knowledge of religious institutions. And for a woman of faith like me, the secular movement also can be very hostile. Um, so we tend to fall in between the cracks. And I feel like those women of faith can also be the best bridge builders. So when I started talking to some religious working on women... Um, and for women being able to show up whole which means you have to deal with the trauma um, with the fact that they're sexual some of the areas we don't want to address um, first mm-hmm. lens um, a lot of the religious leaders were warning me. They're like, "Manal, this is a red line. You know, khat ahmar line. this is a red line. Like, you know, we respect you. We we love you. And, you know, I've met with some of the top religious leaders in the world. Um, and they were, you know, y- you have a place in government. You have a place as a mediator. Like, don't step out into this dangerous red line. Um, mm-hmm. Now I'm a Taurus. So you don't want to flash red. <laughs> it's just makes me charge further and that's why I called my organization Across Red Lines because I wanted to invite those same religious leaders um, not demand you know initially it was called Cross Red Lines and I felt that was too demanding I wanted it to be an invitation come across these red lines with me and that's what we do. <laughs>
1: One of the things that interests me the most about your organization and, and and is that it's not a think and do tank it's more of a an 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 operational element within the Muslim community that that awakens and energizes people to address their own selves within the construct of merging Islamic tradition, Islamic law. And Western concepts. Um, I always my career is 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 translating Western concepts to Islamic to to uh, collective cultures in Islamic context in the reverse. Right. So we have a very similar career, and it's it's uh, it's translating. Uh, but you do this in an active way, uh, and uh, I, can you speak a little bit about your anchor programs and how they are? Um, Um, actualized to affect people in a positive manner within the community.
2: Mm, Beautiful. And I love that, you know, the idea of like, it's not a think, it's not a do camp uh, tank, you know, if anything, it's a feel, it's a reminder for me that, you know, uh, our, our spirits are here on a journey and, you know, they're in a physical realm, which is the body. And, you know, the body is made from this realm. It's, you know, it's what, you know, one of my spiritual teachers calls our earth suit, Um, And it's our GPS. So the more in touch with your body, with your feelings, then you're in touch with your navigation system. And when you're too much in the think and you're too much in the mind, you lose the navigation. You lose that connection with spirit, which is your guidance. Um, So that's very much what Across Red Line's heart is, is how to return to feelings, how to return to the body as a navigation um, you know, a lot of the new age people would call it your higher self, your spirit guides, but, you know, it's all internal. It's all within us. Um, and that's what I really work towards. Um, there's a saying of the prophet that is to know yourself is to know God. And so that's what we do is our core program. We work in programs. We do exercises. Um, we do workshops that bring, again, I mean, the collective consciousness. Uh, you know, one of the workshops is called Build Your Tribe, where you actually build the tribe that you need to support. Because, you know, as human beings, we're not meant, to be alone i mean this is why i've always loved the religious space is it emphasizes community Um, and what i try to do is get people to find the i and the we so how do you balance individualism with collectivism you know how do you not self-sacrifice to martyrhood which is not what we're asked of um, and especially for women because we're taught you know sacrifice suffer and it builds character and no you know what actually religion wants is happiness it wants peace you know In Islam, sakina, tranquility, is the greatest gift. It's the greatest achievement. And so I wanted, in going back to conflict, I wanted to break out of this fight energy, of this, you know, constant um, aggression that is landing inside us. It's not landing in the target. It's actually landing in us as individuals and us as a community, which you see with the growth of extremism. That's the most tangible way to show it.
0: Mm. You struck a lot of chords there Manal um uh we won't won't go down too much of a rabbit trail, but uh while Christians would probably think and speak a little differently about the body and and its relation to our our spiritual side uh, I do recognize that uh, there are a lot of there's some Christians now uh, who are starting to point out uh where Christians have often erred, particularly uh, in the West, is kind of a s- separating, uh, kind of creating a dichotomy between spirit and, and body, and are trying to re- rethink some of those things. So m- maybe that's a, a task for me to track down um, a Christian theologian or someone uh, to talk about that from a Christian perspective. But I, I recognize that there's. I have some, the
2: perfect person for there. you.
0: <laughs> yeah, go for it. Um,
2: um, I, I am, you know, sh- sorry just to that, you know, on terms of that regard, I'm a, a very proud student of Father Richard Rohr, um, and as someone who grew up in the South, was very committed to understanding Christ's heart. Sorry, there's definitely traffic. Um, and, you know, it always eluded me, I mean, especially as a Muslim, like, I, I couldn't quite grasp the idea of the Trinity and monotheism and stuff, and Father Richard Rohr really goes into great depth about the link that you're talking about, um, and I think the book to start with would be Naked Now, um, and you know he's he's quite a, a very eloquent writer. has tons of books, but that's that's definitely where I would encourage you and your listeners to look into if you're curious.
0: Yeah, interesting, and, and also kind of in my orbit of theologically conservative Christians and scholarship, uh, a lot of scholars are starting to try to reclaim uh, exercise as a common thing that feeds into um, the their their. The, the performance of their mind basically uh it's maybe not not broad sweeping but i do see some upticks in uh in scholarly type people uh those of us who kind of professionally live a fairly sedentary lifestyle uh trying to kick up our our exercise habits um and, and do some good things for our body because they recognize it, it does contribute um in some positive ways uh towards our mind and, and our, our spiritual lives um so that's it's pretty helpful um, John are you doing are you exercising
1: well you know one of the three well I am exercising I live right outside the Catskill Mountains so um, and one of the places that I go to all the time is is a place called the Devil's Path which is goes from Devil's Devil's Tombstone uh, which is Hunter Mountain to Devil's Kitchen which is Indian Head Mountain so I go there almost every morning and and hike around but one of the one of the, the the core components, I mean, I one of the main reasons why Manal's organization is 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 not, so sexy to me is that I always talk about these three components, and I think that maybe we could chat a little bit about it. One of them, though, is sort of reenergizing the body, and and reenergizing the body from a a, a, a Quranic perspective. The idea that you know our spiritual being is in, is encased in this in this body right that the terrestrial body and the idea that not only do we have we're fashioned in proportion right and 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 then and allows us breathe into us breath right and and this and, and the spirit the idea that we have uh to take care of who we are on the outward self um, and 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 energize the body so that our 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 spiritual self is is not just intact but flourishing and i, mm-hmm. I, I I'm, I'm extending this to you uh manal as uh, as a question you know how does your organization do this do this and i I, I, I know you have some specific programming that speaks to this
2: yeah um so so yeah i mean definitely man the, the image that I love is is the idea that the spirit is the rider and the body is the horse, and you need to master that that riding of the horse and um, so what, what we do is we actually bring people together. One is, I believe, when people come together in the collective healing, it happens naturally. We actually do it upstate New York predominantly is my main location because I try to take people um, into nature. And then the other place I do it is in the Middle East. We'll go out to the desert. You know, there's just something about being completely surrounded by nature that, of course, connects you almost directly to the divine. Um, And even that is a huge step, you know, women are really willing to invest in themselves for some certification, they'll do stuff for their children, they'll do stuff for their families, but to actually take even if it's just two days off into nature, it feels so luxurious that it's often a whole hurdle in itself is to just actually arrive and show up for yourself. And then we do very specific exercises. So you know, there's group prayers, there's group meditation, um, you know, a lot of Interestingly enough, a lot of people in the Middle East actually didn't have a faith background. So I had, um, for example, a Dutch woman and a German woman attend, which I found to be very interesting that they were choosing a space which is dedicated to women of faith. Um, and what they were explaining to me is the tie between leadership and sexuality is missing in the secular world. So that's what particularly grabbed their attention. Um, we do sound healing. But, you know, the most important thing is kind of that excavation to really go to the to core Um, In Islam, we believe in something called fitra, which is you're born into a state of purity and life and the journey of life pushes you out of that state. So, you know, kind of that journey is to return to the state you're born in. So we try to access what is that fitra? What is that, you know, purity that you're born into as a spiritual being that comes into the physical realm? And, you know, that's a lot of what we do. And then I bring my conflict negotiating skill, you know, one of the most biggest challenges with human interaction is we want people to read our minds, you know, we will sacrifice, we will love sensing the people we love know, Um, and communication, and unfortunately, these days, verbal communication is essential. So we do exercises that really look at the art of negotiation and you know, I, I joke about asking for what you want, even when you don't know what it is, and that's what gives people a chance to really respond and build relationships. Is when you ask, when you're able to, you know, be clear on what you need.
1: I mean, we, you know, we we started on reenergizing the body, um, and the, the the comment about that, and then talking about reconnecting with nature is where you let into, which is the second element that I always talk about because you know, it doesn't matter which Islamic civilization you're talking about, you know, built elaborate gardens and fountains and, and, uh you know, made sure that, that, that uh, we were reconnecting with nature at, at all different periods um, of, uh, and trying to reintegrate nature into our complex lives as as society and bureaucracies were being built. And I think that's really, really important. If you, I was, Wondering if we could get a little bit more into re, uh, like a reawakening the mind about what it is that I always kind of express how the universe is an expression of, of Allah's will, and and creation is inspired. The diversity of the Muslim community and it ties into you know artistic expression, scientific expression, philosophical expression, and um, maybe you could talk a little bit about how your programming and what your programming does to reawaken the mind. So, you know, there's the body, there's nature, and and the mind are the three themes that I always throw around. But I, I, if we could unpack that a little bit, and from a, a Muslim con- construct, um, and it, I think it's also it will help with um, some of our other faith listeners to hear about its its place in Islam and how you have been seeding that within the individuals that participate in your
2: work. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I, I see it's four elements. So there's the mind, there's the body, there's the spirit, and I see the heart as a whole other science. So, you know, even though technically it's part of the mind, the heart in itself, I mean, the body, the heart and the mind are part of the body, it, the heart and the mind in itself has their own science. Um, and, you know, within the Islamic realm, I would say purification of the heart is the best, really, um, way to examine the, the idea of the heart. Um, what I try to do with the mind in particular and reawakening the mind. Because, you know, so much of the um, consciousness may try and make the mind the enemy. And you hear about the monkey mind, you hear about the mind that runs away. And so there might be a temptation to kind of shut the mind off, um, which is there's nothing more uh, frightening for the mind than that temptation. So it's just going to come back stronger. Um, So what we do is we engage the mind. and, And what I like to do is give it a task. So, you know, we will be doing actual physical activity while we're engaging the other elements. Um, And this is also very known within the Sufi tradition. So, you know, you would have people weaving the carpets while they're learning their their courses. Because what that does is engage the mind with something productive and repetitive. So it doesn't need to come and interrupt the spirit of the heart while it's learning. Um, So, you know, for me, it is very much the engagement of the mind. But because whether you're in the West or not, the Western mentality is very much part of globalization and the overemphasis on the mind is part of that. Especially with the emphasis on science, so you know my program really is about engaging the mind with a task versus what you would be calling awakening the mind like you know that I think is more of a advanced process once you come into an integrated space, which is my main goal is the first step is in integration
1: I mean it's uh, so could you know when it comes to Matthew's community you know I and, in uh, and, and, and understanding how um, the journey uh, it takes for a, an individual who's, you know, all caught up in, you know, the fundamentals of Islam, for example, and not necessarily looking at their 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 and and and, and wanting to who's obviously was participating in your, in your programming and wanting to investigate themselves more and where their spirituality lies with investigating themselves. What's a real world example. You may not mentioning any names, but of of a journey someone took uh, to, to actualize themselves within the tradition of maintaining the traditions of Islam, but also um, getting to a destination of awakening.
2: So, so I'll share my journey because I feel like that's the safest place when it comes to this because, you know, I, I, I generally don't. But, you know, there was a moment where, um, you know, particularly, you know, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, Somalia, Sudan, when it was one nation, you know, I saw Sudan partition into South Sudan. I was in the Rumbek back and stuff. You know, you, you absorb so much trauma. Um, and for me, a lot of this was done in the name of my faith. You know, I remember sitting in Khartoum and talking to young Muslim men who, by all definitions, were amazing young men justifying Darfur to me using Islamic text. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, they, and they were trying to explain to me a concept of forced marriage. And, you know, all of it is, is not there and it's misinterpretation, but it hurts so deeply to hear mm-hmm. the words that inspired me being thrown in my face to justify violence. Um, and I had a real faith-shaking experience. You know, I was at a crossroads and I had to, you know, I, I just had to question. And, and I was struggling with the fact that I was questioning my faith and, and really questioning God in, in all forms. Um, and what I did, and this is how a lot of my exercises were then developed, which I moved into my curriculum, is I really went through, um, I traced the whole emotion and the thought down to the initial story. And what I realized from that was that, you know, because I kind of learned my faith on my own, you know, again, in South Carolina, there weren't a lot of peers. Um, I had managed to put God in a very small box and it was, you know, the punisher and the rewarder, um, which ironically repre- you know, also mirrors patriarchy. Um, and, you know, God doesn't like being contained and he definitely doesn't like being in a small box. So he blew up my world. And in blowing up my world is how I re-found God And so what I do is exercises that push whatever each individual who arrives to go through what box, what container did you create for your faith and how do you make it much larger so it really represents the divine. Um, And that's through, again, storytelling, it's through sharing, and it's through very specific exercises that are... I'm very, very much based on experiential learning. So, you know, every workshop ends up looking different, which is why it's so hard to say, you know, I do ABC. It's not an equation. It's the level of experiences that create the consciousness towards growth and evolving.
1: I appreciate you sharing that. I think that um, I I wanted to pitch Matt on this one, because I, it's got to echo a little bit. I know I, my experiences in the South of dealing with um, uh, or interacting with, with Christian communities. My one friend from Kentucky used to say that her uncle was a pastor and she used to hide underneath the pews when he used to preach because it was a fire and brimstone. Um, But maybe maybe Matthew, you talk a little bit about how, because there's a direct connection of of the idea of uh, putting God in a box um, and and how uh, Manal's journey expressed out of that, she broke out of that. Um, through her, her 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 journey of self awareness, um, particularly because of all the in, in, engagement that she had been doing internationally. But you've been international. You know what you've been dealt with. You know, tangled in DC, and your community struggles with this too.
0: Yeah, I, I think the way I might uh, produce a parallel is that I, I do see a lot of Christians. Um, or well, let me back up. A lot of people who grew up in a, a particular Christian context um, that uh, absorbed uh, whatever teaching was coming from the pulpit and Sunday school at the time, uh, only to then later grow up. And have maybe some kind of conflict like Manal described uh, and really investigate the scriptures for themselves and find that what they learned growing up was not necessarily what's in scripture uh, or what's taught in scripture. And so that produces at least a couple different reactions, right? You either leave the faith completely uh, or um, you have a faith renewal, um, that is still Christian right. in, in terms of, uh, it's, a, a you know, salvation, uh, or it's, it's understanding of salvation and, uh. And the centrality of Christ. Um, but maybe there's a lot of other stuff that you discard. Uh, and so I see that pretty frequently. Um, I think it's not just a Southern thing. Um, but, uh, it's certainly a common, uh, faith thing. Uh, and I think some of the, you know, big picture data about religion in America from say, it's probably Pew and Gallup. I forget who did it. Um, more recently, but talks about um, how frequently uh, people in America change their religious association. So we're we're all it's a it's a political season, and so we're always evaluating uh, what Christian groups are or what religious groups are doing what with respect to politics. Um, but there's a pretty interesting story that uh, people are using their freedom of conscience to uh, change religions, even if it's not uh, as dramatic as say uh, Christianity to Islam or vice versa, but certainly within the Christian space, there's a lot of movement. There's a lot of, a lot of changeover. And I think some of that has to do with um, uh, being taught one thing when you, when you're little um, maybe in a particular understanding a particular interpretation and then uh, growing growing up and, and kind of owning it for yourself. Um, maybe it's corrective. Um, maybe it's augmenting. Um, you know, some people, there's a particularly among a couple of the younger generations uh, who grew up in what we call low church, evangelical space, um, uh, independent churches. Um, there's often an attraction to, older churches like the Anglican church or the, or the, or Catholicism. Uh, There's something about those traditions that that people really uh, gravitate to. Um, They feel like they're more connected in some cases to an older body of believers and and traditions. Um, I, I would, of course, sometimes challenge that because I think there's al- there's always been diversity uh, in Christianity going way back uh, to the early days we see conflicts even among the disciples developing pretty early on that they have to uh, eventually reconcile but that's kind of my riff uh, uh, to your question john
1: I appreciate you sharing it because I think that connectivity is 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 important you know within our respective communities to chat a little bit about how you know we've we struggle with what we know and we're what we're comfortable with, and sometimes it's. I always think about your comment about reading on. You know, when someone says this is what the Bible's about. You go read on. You know, mm, so mm. Um, it's the same thing with the, with the Quran. You know, it's like totally. it's the same thing. It's read on, read on. Uh, and uh, um, you know, I I I had a this experience when I was visiting Afghanistan in, in 2012, and and I had an, I had a, at, at the American Islamic Congress, had this event with Russell Campbell, who marched with Martin Luther King. And, you know, he is part of the civil rights movement, a really unbelievable uh, guy. And, and we were talking about how what we did is we translated the Montgomery story into both Farsi and Arabic. And it was used in the Arab spring and people, you know, in the Arab spring had signs that said, we shall overcome. And we were you know, really proud of ourselves and uh, about all that stuff. And, um, and, he had mentioned in his speech we were talking about the civil rights movement and and the arab Spring and he had mentioned this whole thing about how when he went to africa he got his his african name and he got very emotional about it uh and i i I didn't understand that moment when it when he said it uh and uh and, and i i was processing it but and and later years later two years later when we had the when i went to afghanistan i i had met distant members of the family who had, were calling me Yahya, you know, and, uh, and he, he, it, it, and I had that exact moment and it was, it was non-Quranic. It was non-Islamic. Mm-hmm. It was not anything. but at that moment it actualized the journey that my family had taken four centuries, you know, four, four generations ago out of out of Afghanistan and, and defending who we are as, as a family and all the spiritual components and the identity catalyzed into that moment, um, which meant something profound for me, which is why part of the reason why I do what I do. Um, but, uh, but I think that, that these, these, these spiritual moments are so important because as people that deal with the conflict and deal with our communities and are actively, uh, our business is peace. Our business is the community. Our business is all these things. Um, Mm -hmm. it's so important for us to Constantly, we're constantly tested on who we are and our identity, on a spiritual level and on mm. on a secular level and on on an intellectual level and, and physical level. That that um, the journey is it's uh, is is these these epiphany moments are so important because they allow us to anchor. Ourselves, even though we might deal with struggle in the future, but um, but I think that there's a lot of importance when it comes to what you do, uh, Manal, and and your and your your organization. Matthew, do you 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 want to have a question here?
0: Yeah, I, I've got one more question, but I also um, given the your previous question about uh, faith experiences that we talked about just a few moments ago. I'd be remiss if I didn't point out that uh, within evangelical circles, uh, probably. Christian circles broadly in America, uh, in light of the Me Too revelations that uh, that are pretty common, um, there are a lot of stories uh, coming out um, of women who were abused at a young ages um, within the context of the church um, and some pretty, pretty. Um, Stunning uh, stories, quite frankly, of how women have experienced that, and um, somehow uh, have not discarded the faith entirely, and actually uh, found renewal and healing uh, through the faith, in spite of um, having really terrible and traumatic experiences uh, at the hands of faith leaders and pastors, and, and sometimes family members. So, um, Rachel Dell Hollander is is one of those uh, women who've spoken out um, pretty. bravely and very effectively, um, among others. So we're seeing that kind of trend within uh, American Christianity uh, that kind of dovetails with a lot of Manal's work. Um, Manal, I want to ask you about um, your time we've recognized that you're in your bio and in your history, you've spent a lot of time in war zones. You've spent time working on conflict resolution, uh, although you're interested more so now in trying to prevent conflict um, working upstream. Um, But you've done a lot of work and, and have a, a lot of insight into what women bring to the table in the context of peace building and conflict resolution. Can you paint a picture for that, for our listeners, uh, what it means uh, for women to be a part of the table? Um, even you touched a little bit about the negotiating skills that you helped develop, but why is it important that women um, are, are, are basically at the table, so to speak, um, when okay. trying to stem conflict either before it happens or resolve it after the fact?
2: Absolutely. I mean, you know, and to be clear, you know, of course, both sides are needed. So you need women and you need men. And, and I feel like it's always important to make that statement, you know, that it's not the idea of women coming in to replace men, but it's the idea of women side by side with men. Um, so if men were absent, I would be pushing that men need to be at the table. It's just that they're not absent. So they're there in strong numbers, um, you know, and it's just kind of kind of speaking from a faith perspective. It's about the seen and the unseen. Um, Speaking from an economics perspective, it's about the formal and the informal. And, you know, women really do bring that informal role into the table. Um, And, you know, the example I like to give is actually I saw this both in Iraq and Afghanistan, uh, you know, when, when, you know, at the time I was predominantly working with the U.S. government and they're trying to access neighborhoods they're trying to get an idea of, you know, who are the foreign fighters, who are the extremists. And honestly, it was my connection with the women. They would always know. They know every child that's playing on the street. And they know who that child belongs to. And so they would be like, oh, these three, we don't know them. Who are those three? And so it is an early detection warning sign. And it was women in Anbar before, you know, Musul really got to a height. They're the ones who came to my office and said, hey, we don't recognize half the people in our neighborhood and we're scared. And that's how we knew there was an increase in foreign fighters when, you know, at one point we were celebrating Anbar as this big win. And then it kind of flipped to the other side. So you know, my whole line is, it's not nice. It's necessary to engage women. Um, You know, I had a lot of U.S. generals kind of push at me and just kind of you know snap and be like, well, as soon as we secure the country, we can talk about your women. And I'd be like, Mm -hmm. listen, until you talk about my women, you won't secure the country. Mm -hmm. They're the eyes, the ears, the pulse of the community. Um, You know, the other thing, and and I believe this is power dynamics. I don't believe it's gender. Um, but, you know, women do have a more horizontal style of leadership. So they will consult, they will look at, you know, um, you know engaging communities. Um, they, had a, they hold a different form of moral authority. I love the women in Nigeria. Like when Boko Haram was like really doing like mass to recruit very, very young men, they did a flip narrative campaign where they started poking fun at those youth being like you're so weak you've got to prove yourself be a real man and stand up to these extremists and they kind of with a kind of tongue-in-cheek flipped the narrative of the extremists by basically also questioning their masculinity and showing that violence wasn't masculine but it took the nigerian women to know how to reach their youth all our campaigns you know were just falling flat because we didn't know how to read we being the u.s government didn't know how to reach them
0: also underscores the point of trying to elevate local leadership um, uh, among among the actors. That uh, even where international organizations and other nation states can try to play a role and and, and can play positive roles, you really need those local leaders and personalities. Absolutely. Right.
2: Absolutely. I mean, it's the first question any security official is going to ask: Is who holds moral authority? And consistently, I have to respond, religious leaders, like you can't ignore that, like they hold moral authority, it changed the game, like let's if you want to look at public health and less political, it changed the game on the war on AIDS in Africa, when we engaged the churches, it it completely changed it. Um, So you need moral authority. And that's from a security lens, and moral authority tends to fall within religion, whether we want to like it or not, it's a fact.
1: Yeah. I mean, engagement modeling is so important. I mean, the, who has access to the different constituencies, different communities within within a country or within a conflict zone? And you know, if you're if you're, you're ignoring women, you, you're you're alienating you're you're losing access essentially to whole right. swaths of the community, um, and you're also losing a. Uh, a, a moral beacon within the family unit and community unit that is relied on on a daily basis um, so it's it 's it's, it's a, a profound moment as someone has participated in a lot of these roundtables. you know it 's It used to be a women 's round table and a men 's round table about peace building, and now they 're much more integrated which you know, over the last twenty years, it's it's uh, it's gotten to where it needed to be, and it's yeah. there's still a lot of headway. But I remember sitting, you know, at Yusuf with uh, Ambassador Steiner. It was like me and really? and just Ambassador Steiner with a whole bunch of ladies, and uh, and they were like, "This is our roundtable," and we're like, "Well, we're going to sit here because we yeah. got to start figuring out a way to actualize this over the next twenty years." And it's happened. So, um, but uh, but it's I think it's a profound you know question and 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 point to make because i always say a lot of the a lot of the guys that are participating in peace building from a muslim from a muslim perspective in these muslim countries would love to have women participate but they just don't have the tools on the tool belt they 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 don't know uh how to interact uh in in a in a in a formal setting about peace building with their their counterparts now that that may not be true now uh but but certainly twenty years ago it was mm-hmm. um and uh, and that was a difficult task and and it 's because of the work that you've done over the last twenty years but certainly um you know and, and many others but it, the the accessibility to the the information and these constituencies is so important because you miss something and an entire conflict can go sideways
2: <laughs> absolutely absolutely i mean i think that's one of the thing you know kind of again the the painful thing about being in the conflict and peace building space was watching how preventable so much of the worst crises were like we saw mm-hmm. it coming we knew the early detection yeah. we were warning we were ringing the bell and you know like you said something slipped or something slid and you saw it explode and it, i think that's why i had to take the steps back and look at prevention because it was like we saw all of this and did nothing. Um, and, and I don't want to say did nothing because that's not fair to all those people who do such hard work, but like, ah, uh, it's like, how do you miss this? And, and, you know, I still don't know the answer, but it's what I work towards.
1: Yeah. Yeah, I and mean, all no, Omar. I, I'm, nope, I think, no, I, th- I think that it, it's so important because of the, that component of trying to get into prevention as, you know, treating, there was a program at AIC where we were treating conflict like a, and a sickness, an illness. Right. Yeah. And, yeah. and, and trying to figure out the indicators and saying, well, you, you, you would go to a group of doctors to get opinions. And we have the doctors within our communities. We have the specialists. So yeah. we need to kind of, and that might be just, that might be a just a guy who's from a region or, or a gal who's from a region. It just, yeah. it might just Absolutely. be that. Absolutely.
0: And I love that you're
2: saying that because this is the thing that I try to get people to understand about approaching religious leaders, right? Because, you know, you have the fiqh-based religious leaders, which is like approaching the judicial system. And sometimes that's not who holds moral authority. Like, we tend to go to very heavy Mm fiqh-driven imams. And then you have the spiritual imams, which will be like the medical doctor. And when the spirit's in pain, you go to the medical doctor. But, you know, a lot of times when we we're going to engagement, we were going to the justice, like judicial or to the law base. And it's like, you need to go to the health, wellness space, which is a different imam. And I don't even think Muslims understand that, like, nuanced difference. But that was what I kept pushing is like, you're, you're going to, it's like going to the Supreme Court when you need to go to a hospital. And I think that's one of the mm-hmm. biggest mistakes we make in imam engagement.
0: Engagement.
1: Just my two cents. <laughs> no, you're absolutely right about that. I, I you know, it's, it's, it, it's, and, you know, it's very difficult also from when someone who doesn't understand the diversity of the roles of an imam in, in Islamic culture, what their stake is and who and, and, and really their realm of authority and how they, their, they interact with the, their, their, their constituencies. It's, and it's, it's, it's an art. You, you know, there's a. It's like a PhD. You get a PhD in how in, in knowing the different sects, but also from there, um, who is responsible for what, and exactly. on, on a spiritual level, or a legal level, or or a societal level, or a familial level. You know, it, you know, it, and, and it's it's very very difficult to navigate those waters, even if you know. <laughs>
2: yeah, yeah, geez. absolutely.
1: So.
0: Manal, Omar, thank you so much for your time and um, even more so so for your uh, pretty fascinating insights uh, and sharing a bit of your life with us. Um, Where can folks find more information about you and your organization?
2: Um, Go to my website, www.acrossredlines.com. Um, We're launching a new campaign called um, Let Love In 2020. So follow the hashtag on all social media. That'll be launched next week. Um, And we hope that you can share ways that you let love in because that's really the ultimate goal of peace building.
0: Wonderful. Thanks so much for your time. This has been Crossing phase with John Pinna and Matt Hawkins. This has been Crossing phase with Matt Hawkins and John Pinna a podcast of Roll Top Productions. If you like what you hear and would like to help defray the cost of the show, consider sponsoring us on Patreon by visiting CrossingPhase.com. Crossing Phase is available on all your favorite podcast outlets, including iTunes, Google Podcasts, Overcast, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and TuneIn. We'd appreciate your review of our program, especially in the iTunes store. Let us know what you think of the show via Twitter, at mthawk, at JTPinna, or at CrossingPhase. Music for this episode is courtesy Vajra, whose music is available at TheVajraTemple.com, Spotify, iTunes, and Amazon. Show notes for this episode and more are available at CrossingFaith.com.